0: Welcome to the Alpha Architect Weekly Research Summary. As usual, I got Dr. Jack here with us. We got three papers to cover this week, as usual. The first one is, uh, can your alpha cover your tax bill? Pro tip, the ETF wrapper may help. And this paper was written, uh, uh, based off of a paper written by by Rob Arnott and some of his colleagues. Um, And there were a couple questions they looked at within the paper. The, the first question was, and this is a pretty interesting one, has taxable asset management changed over the last 25 years? What has not changed?
1: So generally what they found was that investors and advisors are more aware, I would say, of you know, the taxable implication or the implications that taxes have on a strategy. So there are more tax efficient vehicles that investors can use, such as ETFs, ETNs, to basically be able to invest in strategies, but in a more tax efficient manner. So basically what they found is what has changed is there's a more awareness and people are investing more in ETFs, ETNs. Um, What hasn't changed is they generally find that active managers still underperform the benchmark, which has been a finding that's been historically uh, true across time periods.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's something I talk about a lot, is uh, with what's driving this increased awareness? It's really the internet, right? So investors are now able to track, how am I performing uh, it, after taxes in a simple way, right? Because you can log on to Morningstar, you can log on to uh, all these different ways that 25 years ago, you know, the average regular investor couldn't dream of, of realistically calculating their after-tax returns versus, their pre-tax returns and then whatever. So so the internet's really powerful um, in in driving these types of of changes, being tax, just tax efficiently aware. Um, The the second question they asked, uh, which may be a little counterintuitive, I I don't know, but uh, are ETFs and smart beta vehicles, which we know, I hate that word. uh, So, but are ETFs and smart beta vehicles, similar to actively managed funds in terms of their ability to generate after tax alpha.
1: Yeah, and so what they find in the paper is that in general, um, there's still some underperformance, right? Of like smart beta type strategies, uh, I guess in aggregate. But what they find is that it definitely is better than your average active manager, right? So your average smart beta um, is generally doing slightly better than your average active manager. Got
0: it. Um, Yeah, and then kind of the most important chart, I think, most important takeaway from this paper, uh, Arnott and his team showed that from 1993 through 2017, the average annual capital gains tax burden of mutual funds was 0.9%, whereas the average for ETFs was zero. So if talking mutual funds versus ETFs in a taxable account, that's a that's a big hurdle to overcome. 0, yeah, 09
1: percent, and if you add in dividends, it drops to point eight percent. Just because you know even ETFs have to distribute dividends, and they have to have a small tax, but mutual funds are still 08 percent, or almost one percent higher of a tax burden per year. Right. So pretty big difference.
0: Right. And and to give Jack's point there, because those are really when when we talk about tax efficiency, those are kind of the two things you're looking at: capital gains distributions and uh, uh, dividends, but dividends in, in any wrapper, you can't really get around, right? Com- you have to pay out the dividends, right?
1: Well, well, e- well in ETFs, in, ETFs. Uh, yeah,
0: in ETNs, you can possibly defer that. Ooh, okay, um, so then the next paper we're, we looked at was, uh, it was the profibi- uh, the profitability factor uh the international evidence on it and this this summary was written by larry suedro a regular uh, poster on our site Um, and it was a summary of multiple papers on the profitability factor uh, and the evidence of it in international markets Um, as is typical with larry's post there's a lot to go through here so we're going to keep it short for this video Um, and then the viewers you guys can dive in deeper on our site if you want to read about it Uh, But, so Jack, what is the profitability factor?
1: Yeah, so the profitability factor is really just, you know, historically, if you sorted stocks by some measure of profitability. So um, you could use ROE, that's kind of uh, the Luzang approach. Uh, Novi Mark's original paper was gross profitability, um, where you're deflating it, you know, by assets. Um, And basically historically, no matter how you do it or how you sort, uh, more profitable firms did better than less profitable firms.
0: Got it. Um, and so, like, is is that what, what's the what's the high level takeaway? or Is that really it? That's the high level.
1: Yeah. So the the high level takeaway, um, I would say, from Larry's post, which get, goes through a summary of a couple things, is you know the profitability factor was originally. Well, I mean, it was in Fama French kind of 2006, but that wasn't in their model. Uh, then Novi Marks wrote a paper on it. Um, it's now in the Fama-French five-factor model. Right? Profitability is one of them. Uh, if you use the investment cap M, Lu Zhang says profitability is in there. And then what Larry highlights in today's post, which is kind of newer, but he gave the full background of all of that. Uh, he highlighted that there's a new post examining the gross profitability premium and how it does internationally. And what they find is that it works um, you know, you could argue over which way. How do you want to measure profitability? And that you can read the post for the details. But what it finds is, you know, more confirming evidence that historically more profitable profitable firms did better than it's less ones. Say. See, I'm not the only in one. In international say. markets, which we already found in devi- uh, the U.S. market.
0: Right. And, and he and, you know, just an interesting, easy to understand thing uh, in, in the post they did mention. It kind of helps explain some of Warren Buffett's returns, right? That's kind of what he believes in. Invest in high quality, profitable firms at a fair price. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's another.
1: Yeah, We're we, we, we could talk about that. But that's another paper. Uh, ACOR guys have a
0: paper on that. OK, we don't want to go that far. Um, so paper number three from this week, and this was written, uh, by Jack, uh, what is the correct benchmark for trend following that was the title of the post. So yeah, Jack wrote this paper, Jack, you opened it up with the question. What is the correct benchmark for trend following? So what is it?
1: Yeah. Well, so I, I started with that question and, you know, I even highlight and say, this is a very tough thing to give an answer to, right? Because one of the issues is when, when you trend follow any asset class or any strategy, right, you're taking an active bet, but different from trend following, I'd say, you, you know most people who are familiar with factor investing, right, you're kind of just tilting your portfolio. So you're still invested in stocks, you're just tilting it maybe towards value or towards momentum or quality, right? But in trend following, you're actually literally like changing your net exposure. Right, Right? so what I wanted to to examine is and say, you know, it is a little more difficult in my opinion to compare, let's say, a buy and hold portfolio like S&P 500 to S&P 500 with trend when you're not even invested in stocks more than 80% of the time, right? And so it is a difficult question and I don't think there's a perfect answer uh, to be quite honest with you, but I outlined in the post Kind of my thoughts and what I think is a reasonable, uh, reasonable ways to assess it.
0: Right. Um, okay. And and so you broke down simple trend following across five asset classes: the S and P five hundred, right? EFA uh, international developed, T bonds, REITs, and commodities. You showed the results for these asset classes without trend and then with trend, but. Like before we get into those results, let's just take a step back. What is trend following?
1: Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's using, you know, the past returns of an asset class to basically determine whether or not you wanna stay in the risk asset, right? So if we we assume those five asset classes that we just talked about are risk, right? You could be in cash or you can be in one of those assets and take risk. So trend following says, we're gonna look at the past, you know, I use 12 month rule. Uh, but you could use 200 days 50 days three months six months we use 12 months but you look at your past returns and if it's trending up you're invested if not i assumed you go
0: to cash got it and then what did the results across these asset classes say with trend following and without trend following
1: yeah, so you know, historically, uh everyone knows kind of what the re- you can just simply go on any website and figure out what the total return to any asset class is. Yep. So with trend following
0: and you looked at it over what period?
1: It was uh 73 to uh 2017. Okay. And that was just when I had time series for all of the five asset classes. So I could make that analysis. And so what you found is almost for every single asset class. You, you yielded a return similar to buy and hold, but with a lower drawdown, right? And so, and, and even if you look at sharp ratios that are kind of similar. Yep. And so, you know, that's why historically, if you look at it and say, hey, on an absolute return basis or on possibly a risk adjusted basis, these two are similar, right? So that's a valid argument for people that wanna say, hey, let's just do buy and hold. But some investors are very, uh, concerned about drawdowns and trend following i think is a valid way to at least attempt to reduce it within a specific asset class
0: Got it. Uh, and so so then you, you finally so we went through that we looked at it right both with trend on without trend on results in total returns seem to be you get about the same returns but smaller drawdowns with 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 trend on and then you started to get into what what the actual question you started was what is a fair benchmark for trend following?
1: Yeah. And so how I approached that was what I did was I said, you know, you're basically for these five asset classes, you are either invested in a risk asset or you're not. So I naturally was like, well, hey, what is the percentage of time that you're actually invested in the asset class? Mm. So let's just take U.S. stocks, for example, right? So for U.S. stocks, historically over that time period, you were only invested in stocks 75% of the time, right? So 25% of the time a trend rule was triggered, meaning that you were in cash. Yep. So what I then did was I compared the return of S&P with trend to a portfolio that has the exact same stock cash allocation, 75% stocks, 25% cash. But the only difference from the trend is that it's a permanent allocation. So every month you're 75% in stocks, you're 25% in cash. Whereas with trend, a lot of months you're 100% in stocks or you're 0% in stocks. Right. But on average over the whole time period, right, you you were investing the same amount. And what I found is that trend following did do better, right, than your standard like 75, 25 portfolio. And so I think if you are gonna do some sort of comparison on a trend followed portfolio or try to benchmark it, a reasonable assumption, besides looking at just buy and hold, is to possibly look at over that time period, what percentage of the time you were actually invested in the risk asset and what percentage of the time you were in cash, because then you're giving a fair comparison, right? Like you wouldn't compare an S&P 500 portfolio to 60, 40 because you're only in six stocks 60% of the time and you're in bonds 40% of the time. Right. So I think with trend, you have to make a somewhat similar analysis. Um, some may disagree, but I think that's a reasonable assumption since you're not taking on the risk, you shouldn't get penalized for not taking on risk.
0: Right, right. And you know, to your point, it's something interesting that we talk about a lot is you know, people say, what, what, what's the beta of a trend followed portfolio? And then you kind of got to it there where sometimes it's one because you're fully invested. Sometimes it's zero because you're fully not invested. Um, And and then that speaks to the the dynamicness as opposed to um, just being in a a 60 40 portfolio or 70 30. Yep. Um, All right. So then, so that's that. So that's kind of, you know, Jack's best effort at at what the uh, fair benchmark for trend following is. Uh, So then, so. What's our what's any any additional big picture takeaways you you would add on?
1: No, it's just I, I think a reasonable assumption is when anyone wants to assess how well is trend following done relative to, uh you know just a standard buy and hold portfolio. I think you should account for the fact that you may not actually be invested in the risk asset the whole time, yep. and that was kind of the whole uh, exercise I went through to try to outline that, you know, historically you would only in U.S. stocks, and I did it for all asset classes, but you only wouldn't have invested like 75% of the time. And, you know, if you did trend following where you're the same thing, only invested 75% of the time, you would have actually done better than your 75-25 cash
0: portfolio. Got it. So. And if this is too complicated of a question, you can say, it, but but how, how do we use trend following in a portfolio then? If it's...
1: No, I think you know, that... Depends on the use case and, and the goal. Um, so it's unique. Be. It, it, it's different. It's different and unique. And I think uh, you should be aware of how it works. But um, I think that's a complicated question.
0: Yeah. All right.
2: All right. That, that's what we got for this week. We'll see you guys again next week. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.